Welcome to the second episode of Season 3 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 3 of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Terence Hayes during his tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Hayes's lectures circle the work and life of Etheridge Knight, a poet who has been a muse in mystery and ghost mentor for Hayes throughout his career. In each of the six lectures we'll hear this season, Hayes uses Knight to anchor his broad explorations of poems and poetics. This week, we'll hear Hayes give a talk called Ideas of Influence on Knight's Influences and General Acts of Imitation. Please visit the link in the description for this episode to see several of Hayes's correlative drawings. This talk was originally given January 22, 2015 at the Library of Congress. Please enjoy this episode. All right, so the title of the talk pretty much tells you where we're going, uh, a visual essay, lecture, ideas of influence, poetry, so we are thinking about broad implications of poetry, and then a poet, as you see in the image, Etheridge Knight, through the lens of Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. In 2010, Where Good Ideas Come From was published by Stephen Johnson, actually a DC native, he was born in 68, I think, although he lives in Brooklyn now, like everybody. Uh, author of several books on, as he says in his website, the intersection of science, technology, and personal experience. So he's the kind of charming, you know, fairly good looking for a white dude, I guess, cultural, intellectual TED Talks were made for. And he, he gives a pretty good TED Talk on the book, in fact. Um, the book provides a framework for what is a broad and tiresome, and it feels particularly American obsession, which is how to unlock your creative potential, I mean, where good ideas come from, and then how to get paid, too, I think. Um, in our quarters, that translates to how to unlock your poetic potential, how to write good poems, where do good poems come from. And a talk on poetics is really about that question. What is a good poem? What is poetry? What is a poet? I'm grateful to Wave Books, Charlie Wright, and especially Matthew Zapruder for giving me a chance to spell out some of these questions and ideas. They usually seem less smart spelled out, actually. And I'm excited to be trying out this first visual lecture essay in majig here at the Library of Congress. Thanks to Rob Casper and the staffers for helping me set all of this up. I had a whole other setup, and then, so if anything screws up, I also blame uh, Rob Casper and the staffers. <laughs> so the perennial question of influence drifts in from a landscape still in the oppressive, or depending on your vantage, comical, if you read the book, blustery shadow of Harold Bloom's 1973 book, uh, important but infinitely contestable, the anxiety of influence. You may have heard of it, but I, I, I don't know that many people who've read it. Uh, I've read it. Uh, enough has been said about the book. Uh, its arguments are really entitled, which is to say, uh, you know what, let me put my clock on, make sure I'm keeping track of how long we're going here. His, the arguments are entitled, which is sort of to say, uh, when you hear it, the anxiety of influence, you sort of know you don't necessarily need to read the book. You can just read the back cover and you get it. But entitled also means they're a little bit entitled uh, because essentially it's a book about uh, culture wars. It's about a kind of a, a, a smart but a gatekeeper, Harold Bloom, being concerned about the loss of a certain kind of tradition and a certain kind of power. So that's all in it. Um, uh, and then Jonathan Latham's 2007 Harper's essay, The Ecstasy of Influence, a Plagiarism, provides a pretty good foil to Bloom's cultural anxieties. 
But I'm mentioning Bloom and Latham here at the outset to suggest that a lot's been said, enough has been said, and I don't intend to settle the discussion at all about influence, only to look at a few poems and a poet through the lens of Johnson's terms for innovation and creativity. So why the poet Etheridge Knight is my launch pad and anchor for this lecture, and in fact, all of the lectures I'm gonna give, I think maybe there are five, there are four or five, and he is essentially that, like the kind of thing that I hover around with these conversations. And I hope that that becomes clear over the course of the afternoon, why he's the person that I, I've chosen. So we're gonna begin with a clip, one of those time-lapse clips, if you remember, like, I think UPS did this for a little while, where they had the whiteboard and they would draw out everything. It takes about four minutes. We're gonna watch this clip and it'll tell you everything you need to know about the book. The, uh, uh, does anybody know that book, Where Good Ideas Come From, 2010? So. Uh, I don't know why these guys write these books. I mean, it's a good book. I wasn't reading it, so now I'm improvising, because I wanted to be rich or anything. I just thought, like, sure, I'm curious where the where do good ideas come from. And there are some useful things in it. But again, behind that, the stuff I took out of my talk was about the implications and the questions I now have about a phenomena like a TED Talk, and in fact, the phenomena of this sort of book. But I can't critique. I took it out, because I don't want to critique the man if I'm really, really using his book uh, to extend this conversation. So just edit all that out. All right, so here's a write-up on the book. For the past five years, I've been investigating this question of where good ideas come from. It's a kind of problem I think all of us are intrinsically interested in. We want to be more creative. We want to come up with better ideas. We want our organizations to be more innovative. I've looked at this problem from an environmental perspective. What are the spaces that have historically led to unusual rates of creativity and innovation? What I've found in all these systems, there are these recurring patterns that you see again and again that are crucial to creating environments that are unusually innovative. One pattern I call the slow hunch, that breakthrough ideas almost never come in a moment of great insight and a sudden stroke of inspiration. Most important ideas take a long time to evolve, and they spend a long time dormant background. It isn't until the idea has had two or three years, sometimes 10 or 20 years, to mature that it suddenly becomes accessible to you and useful to you in a certain way. And this is partially because good ideas normally come from the collision between smaller hunches so that they form something bigger than themselves. So you see a lot in the history of innovation cases of, of someone who has half of an idea. There's a great story about the invention of the World Wide Web and Tim Berners-Lee. This is a project that Berners-Lee worked on for 10 years. But when he started, he didn't have a full vision for this new medium he was going to invent. He started working on one project as a side project to help him organize his own data. He scrapped that after a couple of years, and he started working on another thing. And only after about 10 years did the full vision of the World Wide Web come into being. That is, more often than not, how ideas happen. They need time to incubate, and they spend a lot of time in this partial hunch form. The other thing that's important when you think about ideas this way is that when ideas take form in this hunch state, they need to collide with other hunches. Oftentimes, the thing that turns a hunch into a real breakthrough is another hunch that's lurking in somebody else's mind. And you have to figure out a way to create systems that allow those hunches to come together and turn into something bigger than the sum of their parts. That's why, for instance, the coffee house in the age of the Enlightenment or the Parisian salons of, of modernism such engines of creativity, because they created a space where ideas could mingle and swap and create new forms. When you look at the problem 
remember that the great driver of scientific innovation and technological innovation has been the historic increase in connectivity and our ability to reach out and exchange ideas with other people and to borrow other people's hunches and combine them with our hunches and turn them into something new. That really has, I think, been more than anything else, the primary engine of creativity and innovation over the last 600 or 700 years. And so yes, it's true we're more distracted, but what has happened that is really miraculous and marvelous over the last 15 years is that we have so many new ways to connect and so many new ways to reach out and find other people who have that missing piece that will complete the idea we're working on, or to stumble serendipitously across some amazing new piece of information use to build and improve our own ideas. That's the real lesson of where good ideas come from, that chance favors the connected mind. Okay. So that's, you know, you could get that book. You could check that out. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a, a reading list. That's not on it because it really is, as I said, at the, the root of all we're talking about. So I'll come back to it. And there are some good things in it. I mean, for me, when you think about uh, poetry all the time, as I, as I I think I do. Um, I'm often trying to make connections. And, and because I do have a kind of ongoing interest in the, the nature of influence, I wanted to see if his, his theories, and you can see them sort of laid out there, might apply to our conversation. And as I said, I wanted to put at the heart of that question uh, a poet like Knight. And I'll mention a few other poets who might fit into this kind of conversation, and maybe we can talk about that too with our Q&A. So here is really, I'm just going to show you a kind of an outline uh, of, of what I'm trying to do in terms of adapting his terms. So for example, his conversation of the liquid network uh, for us becomes poetic networks. And if you didn't quite follow what he's talking about, I will say the poetic network slash liquid network is just, it's broad and it's often organized around a common idea. So as we'll see in a moment, like the beat movement is an example of a poetic network that is a, a liquid network. The confessional movement, the black arts movement we'll talk about. And even the kind of like MFA associated writing programs is a kind of a liquid network. So we want to test some of that out and see uh, if in fact his, his term can be used as such. Also, this term for him, the liquid network, reminds me of the sociologist, uh, Zygmunt Bowman's term, liquid modernity. So I, I, if I go on a tangent, I'll say, like, I, I trust liquid modernity more than postmodernism. But again, we can talk about that later on. Uh, I don't believe in postmodernism. So it's a kind of chaotic continuation of modernity, he says, where one can shift from one social position to another in a fluid but uncertain manner. Uh, Bowman writes that nomadism becomes a general trait of the liquid modern man as he flows through his own life like a tourist, changing places, jobs, spouses, values, sometimes even uh, more, such as political and sexual orientation. And so Etheridge Knight seems to me like a liquid modern man uh, in various liquid poetic networks. And that's really what we want to look at. So again, you'll see, there's, I was surprised at the number of philosophers I actually have in this thing. Um, somewhere in my you know, ambitions, maybe there's a philosopher or something. So again, that's what's going to lead me to give you a, a reading list here towards the end. But I thought, oh, there's an interesting term. So we got liquid networks, we got liquid modernity, and then we have really this question of poetic networks. So this other term he uses, if I go back for a minute, the adjacent possible, for us are just poetic partnerships. Uh, it's actually an adaptation that 
Stephen Johnson takes from Stuart Kaufman, uh, a biologist, a theoretical biologist. But it's more intimate than the liquid network. So the liquid network is just a big, large umbrella. And in the poetic network, we can think of in fairly literal terms uh, as partnerships, friendships, mentor-mentee relationships. Um, I was thinking as an example, a quick example would be Robert Lowell's. He really thrived on adjacent possibilities. His close friendship to Elizabeth Bishop, if you know, you know, like Skunk Hour, his poem is really an imitation of the armadillo. People think it's the other way around, but it's not. She wrote her poem first, but she wrote so slowly. <laughs> he wrote his poem after hers got in New Yorker. See, now I'm improvising. And then she, he was like, oh, I want to get a poem. Anyway, so there's that relationship. Uh, his second book after Life Studies was, in fact, Imitations. But also, even beyond that, his marriage to, for a long time, to Elizabeth Hardwick, they eventually uh, divorced, and he used her letters in his book, The Dolphin. Another conversation. And finally, uh, the adjacent possible relationships, even with his students, so Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. So that's the adjacent possible, just sort of being in that proximity, the kinds of ways that people are influenced by that kind of relationship. So for me, I just have the term poetic partnerships. Um, and he, like Knight, could be discussed as a liquid modern man. And part of maybe where we're going are thinking about are there other folks that might you know, suit this kind of term. So and then we understand the slow hunch there in the middle. Uh, I think a slow hunch maybe is in terms of stamina, like waiting out an idea if we're going to stay right alongside uh, Stephen Johnson's term. But if we're just going hunch, I'm into the realm of like just intuition, like a hunch and intuition are very similar. And I would actually put the next thing, era, I would say I would add serendipity to that and then put that under the umbrella of poetic intuition. So if he has all of these terms, I'm looking right now at about three as opposed to the four. So in his book and in that mini presentation, he sort of gives us the way that he's separating a hunch from an era. And I'm saying for maybe for a creative person, for a poet or an artist, maybe there's a closer relationship between the hunch and the era, and then something like serendipity. So this other term, exaptation, I would just say it's like reading to write. Maybe it's something like imitation. So he says this in the, but it's very quick, so I'll spell it out a little bit. Exaptation originates as a biological term. It's the use of a structure or function for a purpose other than that for which it was initially evolved. So birds, for example, initially developed wings and feathers as a means of heat regulation, but they became a way to fly. So that's exaptation. Uh, and Johnson cites uh, Gutenberg's printing press, which was primarily a, repurp a repurposed wine press and as an example of innovational exaptation. So there's a term. So for me, I'm thinking language itself is probably our best example of exaptation as the meaning of words and terms are constantly being revised and repurposed. Reading to write or imitation is also a kind of exaptation when a poem or any art object is viewed, let's say, as a door to a new piece of art, a new poem, as opposed to, as we often think of imitation, a kind of mirror. So many times we look at a you know, Mona Lisa, and we say we're going to do our version of Mona Lisa, but we're really in conversation and trying to mirror what's great in Mona Lisa. But exaptation says painting or replicating Mona Lisa should send us to a whole other place, Bugs Bunny. So uh, when we think of it this way, influence and imitation become less a marker of apprenticeship or even mastery and more markers of practice and process. So that's how I'm understanding that term. Platforms are... I think of, for us, workshops. For poets, it's the notion of the workshop. And they do sort of fit right in the middle of the adjacent possible, which are sort of two people 
in conversation, the intimacy of adjacent possible, and then the largeness, the sort of general broadness of the liquid network. So for him, again, he's talking about it in more general terms, more technological and professional terms. And I'm thinking we all know sort of the phenomena of the workshop if we have any sense of sort of what's happening uh, for poets these days. And what do I have here? Platforms are akin to workshop environments, the MFA, the community workshops, you know, writer's core here in, in DC uh, that spring up in living rooms and libraries, retreat workshops. Perhaps the success of a workshop leads to a network, and there I'm thinking of an organization like Cave Conum, which really began as a retreat workshop, intimate but not adjacent possible, but intimate enough, but over you know, almost 20 years now, we could say it's really a kind of impressive network. Uh, not as big as the MFA network, but you know, it, it runs counter to something like a beat movement or a black arts movement. So again, the stages of the liquid network, maybe it kind of keeps spreading. So finally, I won't apply Johnson's four quadrants down. You can only see it down at the bottom. I don't think it comes up. He mentions this at the end. And again, we're sort of really getting into entrepreneurial relationships and business models at the end of it. I'm less interested in that. Um, and so I'm just thinking like what we're really moving towards are the ways that our relationships can help us collaborate and be more productive. And what the quadrant idea really points to most importantly is that creativity and influence thrive in workshop environments that are diverse, generous, and fluid. So that's already a kind of you know, debatable comment, which is to say, can creativity and poetry thrive in isolation or even just in an adjacent possible relationship? And I would say I don't think it thrives only in a liquid network or in a poetic network. So that middle ground, which is some combination of intimacy and network or you know, being, encountering people who aren't in your immediate sphere, which is sort of what can happen in a workshop, I would say that, that really, in his fourth quadrant stuff, is what he's talking about. But we're not going to talk about that. But finally, such environments are at the root of our most successful poetic schools and movements. So at the end of it all, you have a kind of a circle. Once we have an organization like the Beats or the New York School Poets or the Cave Conan Poets or AWP Poets, the hope is that other kind of networks grow out of that network, other kind of partnerships grow out of that, other kinds of intuitions, other kind of productivity, and the idea is that that circle continues. So I mean, I really could stop there, but I have like uh, you know, 60 more pages to go. But that's the outline. So looking now. Um, these next slides are fairly self-evident. It's evident it's the work of a New York-based artist, Ward Shelley. He makes flowcharts in ink and paint on large sheets of mylar. His works have titles like The History of Science Fiction, which is what that one is, um, and Who Invented the Avant-Garde. They're, they're probably too small for you to see, but what I really want you to see is just sort of the elaborateness of them, and also uh, they're, they're pretty big. So Shelley has a painting uh, called The Beats, and there it is, you know, 29 by 59 inches. So it covers a big wall, uh, and I'll try to explain it because I think you probably can't see it that well there. And um, The Beats, for example, convincingly cast the movement as one of the most significant poetic networks of American poetry in the last century. Its influence is more local and therefore more measurable than something like modernism or even modernism's liquid network. Modernism is just such a large term if we're really thinking about networks and poetic network, it's, I think we want to look at something like this, like the beat movement. Um, modernism is actually more pervasive than liquid. It's like air and atmosphere, a vaporous network. But the beat's liquid network 
as Shelley shows us, is specific but far-reaching enough to touch writers across a broad cultural spectrum. His painting visualizes the workshop, the adjacent possible relationships, and all the other things that kind of made the beat movement what it is. So at the start, here's a little bit larger version of it. At the start, to the far left, we can see the main men there drawn in, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg, the central poet of the movement and thus one of the most influential poets of the last century. Shelley places him in New York with Kerouac and Burroughs. You can sort of see that in that gray area, sort of to the middle of it in this zoom in. In the 40s and then in San Francisco with Peter Olowski and Lawrence Ferlinghetti in the 50s, and then back in New York with Leroy Jones as the beatsploitation ends or maybe morphs into hippie doom or I don't know what, we, what comes after the beats. I think it's flower, flower power. So uh, if you can see these images in, on one of these slides, is it on this one? Uh, his website is there. It's warshelley.com or something like that. So they're pretty interesting. He also had one that I took out because I thought, again, distraction. Carol Schneeman, do you know who Carol Schneeman is? The sort of avant-garde artist with the scrolls, the vagina scrolls. So that's why I took it out. So we'll keep moving. If you look them up, you'll get it. So uh, here's my version. Oh, oh no, I, did I skip that? Where's the downtown one? Okay, so Shelley's painting the downtown body presents a more geographical liquid network as it maps 100 years of the downtown New York art scene. Uh, its literary artery draws a more substantial connection between the beats and other poetry movements in the New York's poets, the Norican poets, the poetry slam poets. So I, let me get a little closer so you can see what I'm talking about here. Um, so this is a zoom in on this. He's really thinking about the avant-garde, the New York scene, 100 years of that. And then he has this sort of gray thread running through that large one here. You can see it sort of at the top, which is what's happening. So now the beats just become one part of it. That red section, before we get to it, is like McCarthyism. But so now the beats just have a moment. He still has Ginsburg, Kerouac, and Burroughs listed there. But then that goes into the New York school. As I said, it goes into the New Yorican poets and the slam poets. Um, this painting also illustrates the role publication plays in the spread of poetic networks. And then note how the magazines uh, and periodicals decrease in the era of new professionalism. So Shelley's painting ends with this period, you know, in the 1990. So we're left to guess, and I think we can guess, the impact of new professionalism on the liquid literary network. So it's sort of like, where would he go after 2000 if we see uh, new professionalism? And he doesn't define it. He doesn't say what it is. But as I said, I think we can sort of begin to think about it. So what I have is a square. It's literally square. But this is my version uh, of what he's done, just sort of playing around in a, in a graphics program. So very quickly, you know this. Like, this is a pretty much a little uh, history. This is 100 years of American poetry. So there's WWED, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson. So the rest of it you can fill out. Do I need to say the names? Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, Gertrude Stein, Langston Hughes, William Carlos Williams, um, uh, Wallace Stevens. And then we get into, like, Baraka, you know, the four dudes, you see they're, they're almost all dudes, which is really what it was. Uh, Barack O'Hara, Lowell, Ginsburg. But at the end of that, what you see around the 1990s where he's sort of leaving. So I'm thinking if I was going to extend this, where would we get? We get spoken word, we get associated writing programs, we get names like Paul Beatty, Yusuf Komenyaka, Mark Doty, Ann Carson. And so that's me sort of speculating on what happens on the end of that, that lineology that he's creating for us. Um, so 
My square illustration equates professionalism with the rise of the MFA programs, the MFA associated writing programs, is our present prominent example of the poetic network with all its problems and advantages. I don't mean this as a repudiation of the MFA network. In many ways, it serves the same purpose as the preceding networks, that is to create adjacency uh, relationships. Moreover, despite the size of the MFA network, it has not eradicated the community workshop, uh, that stage of influence between the network and partnership. So then this just runs through. There's Breadloaf with Frost. There's Kavi Khanum, a bunch of people sitting around. And then there's the annual MFA programs phenomena that happens in you know, Poets and Writer every year for the last few years. So just to say again that it's pretty pervasive and the feature of the workshop, um, the, the way the workshop thrives gives us a sense of the prominence of something like the MFA workshop. So then I have little moments in here where I'm just sort of talking. So when I was a first year grad student seeking something beyond the MFA workshop, I attended a community workshop every third Saturday. This group, minus myself, held no university students, though it happened in the shadow of the University of Pittsburgh. The workshop had been founded by August Wilson and a band of young black poets. By the time I showed up, August was gone, but a few of the founders were there among a steel mill working aspiring playwright, an ex-con heroin addict who actually had run in his day with Etheridge Knight, uh, a lonely old woman who wore whatever the weather or time of year, a beige raincoat and floppy interstellar rain visor. She was a black Marianne Moore, she really was. She was a widow, though any reference to her late husband was replaced by poems of lucid carnal desire. It tickled her to read them, it tickled us to hear them. Sometimes the South African poet Dennis Brutus would make a cameo. A steady flow of changing diasporatic, sporadic faces would emerge summoned by the two decades old mailing list. So I'm not implying an unfavorable, unfavorable view of MFA workshops, though I am generally unfavorable of the MFA workshop culture, so much as suggesting that the community workshop also fosters and extends a platform even when the poets do not possess or maybe do not have access to the professional network or the new professionalism that seems to be dominant these days. So the poetry retreat is an ideal platform for this, a kind of academic poet or an MFA poet really to rub shoulders with a community poet, an experimental poet. So I'm thinking again of Kaveh Khanum, Kundaman, Breadloaf, Naropa, any summer workshop where poets have traveled to be together. And again, that's why it falls in the middle of like what we think of as the adjacent possible, where it's like, well, we live together, we see each other a lot. The poetic network, where we maybe never see each other, though we know that other poets are out there. And then this idea of the workshop as a place where people are sort of coming from different regions and bringing that information, that experience for different regions. So the New York school poets present a kind of community city, city retreat workshop the New York writing circles predate the MFA network, uh, the language school network, but the poets with their numerous periodicals and collaborations were certainly professional. There too, the poets traveled to be together, even if it was, as in the case of Allen Ginsberg and Leroy Jones, only as far as New Jersey. Here we see Ginsberg, Jones, and O'Hara, three of the most important poets of the last 50 or 60 years, reading in New York City at the Living Theater. I think the Living Theater is actually still around. The theater was a kind of workshop platform as it featured the work of American writers like Gertrude Stein, William Carlos Williams, Kenneth Rexroth, John Ashbery, and Leroy Jones's play Dutchman opened there in 1964. So I can almost imagine a world 
in which it's Leroy Jones that is the model for our liquid modern man. He, Leroy Jones, is a link between Ginsburg and the Beat Network, O'Hara and the New York School, and he's a link between Amiri Baraka and the Black Arts Movement. He flows through networks like a tourist, changing places, spouses, names, values, and orientations, if you know anything about Frank O'Hara and the biography written by Frank O'Hara. So the idea that the liquid man also sometimes switches sexual orientations, but we, know, we don't know for sure if that's true of Baraka. But we know he changed names, spouses, places. So in his 2006 book, Beautiful Enemies, Andrew Epstein says, during a crucial eight-year period as the 1950s turned into the 1960s, Baraka became, came to embody an exciting experiment in collaboration, friendship, and intertextuality across traditional boundaries of race. Few, if any, major African-American writers have ever been as thoroughly immersed in a community of white writers, lovers, and friends as Baraka, and few have so dramatically extricated themselves from this kind of interracial dialogue. So I recommend Epstein's book to you, as it was recommended to me by poet Stephen Burke. Here's a book, a book copy description, because it really is very much in league with our conversation. Although it, this is from the book, although it has long been commonplace to imagine the archetypal American poet singing a solitary song of myself, much of the most enduring American poetry has actually been preoccupied with the drama of friendship. Andrew Epstein argues that an obsession with both the pleasures and problems of friendships erupts in the new American poetry that emerges after the Second World War. Beautiful Enemies reveals a fundamental paradox at the heart of post-war American poetry and culture. The avant-garde's commitment to individualism and nonconformity runs directly counter to its valorization of community and collaboration. So again, the book really does fit. But as I said, there's a problem, and I'm going to come to that problem. But first, when we're thinking about Leroy Jones, this is just one of my drawings with black art in the back. When we're thinking about Leroy Jones and how for that moment, let's say for eight to 10 years, when he really is our example of the liquid modern man, um, Epstein describes this cover of Floating Bear, which is a magazine. And I, I think that this could, did that not come up yet? There it is. Um, I think that maybe Leroy Jones drew that. I couldn't find out who, who drew it, but. Um, Epstein describes this cover of Floating Bear magazine Leroy Jones edited in the early 60s as such. So you won't be able to see what's written in it, but this is what it is. The cover of the 1963 Christmas issue of the Floating Bear nearly captures Baraka's centrality to the New York universe, the American poetry universe. It features a Santa Claus figure sitting on a toilet, the toilet being the title of a 1963 play that Baraka did, and then reading Baraka's newly published book, Blues People, and surrounded by a wide variety of names, almost entirely of white writers involved in the intertwined circle of the bohemian New American poetry scene. There are the New York school poets like Frank O'Hara on the right, beats like Ginsburg behind his head, black mountain affiliates like John Wieners, the painter Robert Rauschenberg, journalists like Locus Solis, Partisan Review, Evergreen Review, as well as predecessors like Ezra Pound at the top. So that's what all of the drawing is, although you can't, you can't quite see it. I think Epstein has a website. Uh, maybe I got this off of his website. So if you want to get a, a closer look, you can find it there. So Leroy Jones was the model of our liquid modern man. 
But when he became Amir Baraka, he also seems to have become less susceptible to influence. This is not a critique of his political transformation so much as a mourning of the diminishing impact of fluidity as he aged. He remained, like it or not, at the center of contemporary American poetry. He remained engaged in partnerships. Allen Ginsberg was always one of his dearest friends. And he remained involved, actually, in workshops. For example, he and his wife, Amina, hosted monthly salons open to folks of diverse races and backgrounds at their home for many years. So in that way, we could say, yeah, he continued to be a liquid modern man. Why aren't we talking about him instead of Etheridge Knight? But his poems, I've just last month reviewed SOS, the collected poems coming out from Grove Press any day now, I guess. In his poems, there is less and less evidence of experiment or the era slash serendipity associated with influence. Influence, when you hold the word a certain way, is synonymous with vulnerability and openness. And I think that was not one of his interests, you know, or a kind of art that displayed a certain vulnerability. And that's sort of where I go. Uh, I say such elements were replaced by his maturing mastery and style. Baraka, he got older, he figured out what he wanted to do. He knew what poetry was. I would say they were replaced by maturing mastery and style if I valued words like mastery and style, which I do not. I don't think that those are, are good terms for us. So as I mentioned earlier, I fit Stephen Johnson's markers of error, serendipity, and hunches under poetic intuition, a term related to philosopher, here's another philosopher, Jacques Maritime, which people used to know, but nobody really knows anymore, the French philosopher. Uh, in his 1960 book, based on lectures he'd given at Princeton, The Responsibility of the Artist, which you can find online, actually, Jacques Maritain provides a succinct reasoning for the value of creative intuition versus the socialist realist tradition. So there's a separation between those two. And this is just something he says. I just think it's a good quote. Poets do not come on stage after dinner to afford ladies and gentlemen previously satiated with terrestrial food the intoxication of pleasures which are no, of no consequence. But neither are poets waiters who provide these same people with the bread of existential nausea, Marxist, uh, Marxist dialectics, or traditional morality, the beef of political realism or idealism, and the ice cream of philanthropy. They provide mankind with the spiritual food, which is intuitive experience, revelation, and beauty. So does that make sense? He's just sort of thinking about, like, what are we feeding you? What do poets feed the audience? And so we're not, um, we're not waiters. We're not feeding you ice cream. We're not feeding you beef. So essentially, he says, we're feeding a kind of spiritual food. And so I think that's relative to where we're going. So um, I'll spend a little time on this slide here. It looks like we're about halfway through here, so that's good. Uh, as Leroy Jones settled into Amiri Baraka, so too did the liquidity of the black arts movement settle into its form. In 1968, Baraka and Larry Neal co-edited Black Fire, an anthology of African-American writing, which is often considered the seminal work from the black power movement. We wanted the oral tradition in our work. We wanted sound, the pumping rhythm of black music, uh, Baraka tells us. And so his poem, Black Art, is an amplification of the new aesthetics. And I don't know if you know that poem. It's been around for a while. We want poems that kill, assassin poems, poems that shoot guns, poems that wrestle cops in the alley and take their weapons. So his declaration against vulnerability, which is the same as passivity for Baraka in poetry, comes in lines like, let there be no love poems written until love can exist freely and cleanly. Let black people understand that they are the lovers and the sons of lovers and warriors. Uh, the boldness of such a poem and the dynamic black arts movement aesthetic impacted many young black poets. 
Neil and Baraka were uh, contributors along with poets like Sonia Sanchez, Victor Hernandez Cruz, Jay Wright, and even Stanley Crouch, which if you know anything about Stanley Crouch, that's crazy. Um, so that black female poets like Audre Lorde, whose debut book, The First City, appeared that same year, and then Lucille Clifton, who was actually a classmate of Baraka's at Howard University before he dropped out, uh, whose Good Times debuted a year later, were not included in Black Fire, really highlights the anthology and the movement sort of narrowness in terms of nationhood, which was really closer to manhood, which is important, but they didn't call it manhood. There are only four women poets included among the 40 men in the uh, anthology. But of course, three years after Black Fire, uh, three years being about the time it would take to do your own anthology, uh, Detroit's Dudley Randall published The Black Poet. So Dudley Randall's like the, uh, he's sort of like the Barry Gordy of, he's actually from Detroit, but you know, he, he put on a whole bunch of people with his broadside press. So he's like the Barry Gordy of publishing. He directly states in his intro, Dudley Randall does, that uh, Black Fire does not include Robert Hayden, it does not include Donnell Lee, Gwendolyn Brooks, Etheridge Knight. So Gwendolyn Brooks and Etheridge Knight were both closely associated with the black arts movement, and again, especially in terms of like adjacent possible relationships, but they weren't in it, so three years later, Randall creates his anthology and includes them. While Lord, Clifton, Brooks, and Knight wrote poems that could speak directly to black people, which is to quote Neil, Larry Neal, their work differed from the prescribed black arts poem in various ways, and I think we can guess at some of the ways. Uh, but be that as it may, I'm placing them at the nexus of the new black arts poetry in 1968. Those poets, along with Baraka, influenced the black arts movement just as much as the movement influenced them. So I'm thinking here of the reciprocal influence of the sort uh, Michael Baxendahl describes in his book, Patterns of Intention. Influence is a curse of art criticism primarily because of its wrong-headed grammatical prejudice about who is agent and who is patient. This is Baxendahl. Baxendahl really insists that influence, the river of influence flows in two directions. And then he says, quote, arts are a positional game. And each time an artist is influenced, he rewrites the art's history a little. So I shouldn't try categorizing these four too simplistically, but one could argue that black arts poetry had never been represented so broadly. And in fact, they're all born within a few years of each other. Amiri Baraka and Sonia Sanchez were both born in 1934. Audre Lorde and Lucille Clifton were both born in 1936. So I can say that their generation rewrote poetry's history more than a little bit. So again, I won't go down too far down the road. I just have a few lines that you can see there. But even if you know only one or two of these names, you can see how they really do open up our notion of what like a black arts movement was just by virtue of their diversity, their different interests, their different locales, their different adjacent possible relationships, their different models for workshops. So now we are moving into Knight. So Knight was born in 1931. So he's older than those other guys, but only about you know, five years or so. But he was considerably more seasoned. Before his conviction of armed robbery at 29, he would have likely been just as influenced by the cultural shifts in mid-century uh, America as his peers. The Korean War and the echo of two world wars abroad, Brown versus Board of Education, Emmett Till, Rosa Parks, and other such signals of the civil rights movement here in the nation. And then in his own home, there's a kind of second wave migration of blacks heading north for work as his family moved from Mississippi to Kentucky and then to Indiana. But where Baraka, Sanchez, Clifton, and Lord represented a kind of growing black college educa educated class, 
Knight dropped out of school at 14, enlisted in the Army, and then absorbed many of the substances and the sounds he encountered. I came to poetry not through any academic channels, he told Charles Rowell in the late 70s. And then he adds, all of the 50s were a whole drug scene. Uh, I fell and went to prison. The range of experiences dramatically separates Knight from his cohort, and I would also say the range of those experiences, how we sort of begin to see him as a more typical kind of model liquid man. I don't want to make a case for the idea of ancestry as the quintessential black or black arts poem, or for Knight as the quintessential blues or black arts or black poet. Influence, as I'm arguing, arguing uh, is not about promise, but collaboration, not thesis, but synthesis. Knight, it must be said, was an uneven poet. He produced few poems, especially after his release from prison in 68, but he remains a quintessential liquid modern man. One who, to quote uh, Zygmunt Bowman, who told us about the liquid network, had to splice together an unending series of short-term projects and episodes that didn't add up to the kind of sequence to which concepts like career and progress could be meaningfully applied. Uh, in his interview with Raul, Knight pretty much said, I live by poeting, I live from the people, I don't do anything but poet. Uh, sometimes people attach me to universities. If I didn't poet, then I'd be a thief because that's how I started. Uh, I don't know anything else except the hustle. So Knight was, to use Bowman's description of the liquid modernist, constantly ready and willing to change tactics and short-term notice to abandon commitments and loyalties without regret and to, to pursue opportunities according to their availability, which is really the definition of a hustler. He was always ready to hustle. Hustling gave him access to a range of social circles. He wore a street cred, his trillness, which would be a, a portmanteau. Y'all know what a portmanteau is. A portmanteau of true and real. That's what trill is. Uh, as a badge of honor that allowed him to enter many, many social circles. He was, as I've heard from dozens, uh, often lent money and it was charming as a fox. He possessed the slippery tongue of a romantic. He was a romantic, doomed by all the classic troubles of a bluesman, trouble with love, trouble with law, trouble with place. And so I will let him hear this poem. We'll hear this poem by Deal Ancestry, and then I'll talk a little bit more, and then maybe we'll, we'll open it up. So let's hear him read this poem. I started making up this poem when I was in solitary one time. After being called by a number for five years, 30,562, uh, I was beginning to forget who I was. The idea of ancestry. Taped to the wall of my cell are 47 pictures, 47 black faces. My father, mother, grandmothers, one dead, grandfathers, both dead, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, first and second, nieces and nephews. They stare across the space at me, sprawling on my bunk. I know their dark eyes, they know mine. I know their style. They know mine. I am all of them. They are all of me. They are farmers. I am a thief. I am me. They are thee. I have at one time or another been in love with my mother, one grandmother, two sisters, two aunts, one went to the asylum, and five cousins. I am not in love with a seven-year-old niece. She sends me letters written in large block print, and her picture is the only one that smiles at me. I have the same name as one grandfather, three cousins, three nephews, and one uncle. The uncle disappeared when he was 15, just took off and caught a freight, they say. 
He's discussed each year when the family has a reunion. He causes uneasiness in the clan. He is an empty space. My father's mother, who is 93 and who keeps the family Bible with everybody's birth dates and death dates in it, always mentions him. There is no place in her Bible for whereabouts unknown. Each fall, the grades of my grandfathers call me. The brown hills and red gullies of Mississippi send out their electric messages, galvanizing my genes. Last year, like a siren quitting the cold ocean, leaping and bucking up its birth stream, I hitchhiked my way from L.A. with 16 caps in my pocket and a monkey on my back. And I almost kicked it with the kinfolk. I walked barefooted in my grandmother's backyard. I smelled the old land and the woods. I sipped corn whiskey from fruit jars with the men. I flirted with the women. I had a ball till the caps ran out and my habit came down. That night, I looked at my grandmother and split. My guts were screaming for jump, but I was almost contented. I had almost caught up with me. The next day in Memphis, I cracked a Crocus crib for a fix. This year, there is a gray stone wall damming my stream, and when the falling leaves stir my jeans, I pace my cell a flop on my buff and stare at 47 black faces across the space. I am all of them, they are all of me. I am me, they are thee, and I have no songs to float in the space between. So one of the things I would point out is his comment that he began reading that poem, uh, working on that poem while he was in solitary confinement. So some of the questions are what really would have been the impact of his workshops with folks like Dudley, uh, Dudley Randall and Gwendolyn Brooks who came and visited him and sort of worked with him in the visiting room of the prison in Indiana. So we know that he's impacted by the, the moment I mean, he's, he's written about that elsewhere, about the black arts movement sort of infiltrating the prison and the prisoners sort of being transformed by that. So we have something like the kind of cultural network influencing him, but he would not really say just how much they helped him. So what that means is that the poems really remi remain quite uh, unique, I think, to themselves, even as they speak to broader ideas about like African-American identity. It's what separates him. But what I would say that one of the people who surely must have influenced him in this regard would be Gwendolyn Brooks, who was there in the prison and who we know had a pretty sophisticated idea of what it means uh, to be black. So she was influenced by the, the black arts movement. Her book, From the Mecca, also came out in 1968. It was on that, on that plaque. It was nom it nominated for a National Book Award. I don't, know if, I don't think it won one, but I think it was nominated for one. But that was really a reflection, too, of the times and of her sort of absorbing some of these new movements. So by the time he was out of prison, though, and you'll see, I won't talk too long about this. I have gone through that poem and just sort of highlighted moments and really thought about what those moments mean in the poem. So a line like, I know their style. When he got out of prison, he sort of went right into the movement. But I'm going to, you know, because I don't want to take too much longer here, I'll just sort of talk about some of the stuff and only read the things that I need to read. So that may mean that I'll start repeating myself. But so as soon as he gets out of prison, he is 
very much plugged into the network, both because of Brooks and Dudley Randall, who were publishing a lot of the Black Arts Poets, but also because he married Sonia Sanchez. So the wild thing about their marriage is that she saw some of his poems, they began a letter writing sort of relationship. Dudley Randall was sort of in the middle, making sure they were hooked up. Um, they had never seen each other. They wrote a few letters. Uh, I'm trying to think about the, anyway, she hadn't really seen him in September, until September, and then they got married in November. So they had been sort of writing. And then two years later, they were divorced, which of course makes sense if <laughs> you marry someone you hadn't seen for that long. Um, so what I'll say about these images without going through them too quickly is that he was, uh, very much a chameleon. So this is him giving a talk. He sort of got in his black beret and all black sort of black out, black arts outfit outfit in 1972. And then these are some other images of him. Here's him as kind of professorial in 1982, and then him as a kind of homeboy in 1979. So it really says, and of course I've just sort of picked these pictures, but they're to underscore this idea of his uh, fluidity in terms of persona. And I'll, I want to read this quote to you. Um, which is something that he said. He, he's quoted by Larry Neal, who's writing an essay in 68 about the black arts movement, and he's just quoting some of the key figures. And so he quotes here something Etheridge Knight says about black aesthetics. Knight says, unless the black artist develops a black aesthetic, he will have no future at all. To accept the white aesthetic is to accept and validate a society that will not allow him to live. The black artist must create new forms and new values, sing new songs, or purify old ones. And along with other black authorities, he must create a new history, new symbols, myths, and legends, and purify old ones by fire. Further, he must hasten in his own disillusion as an individual, in the Western sense, painful though the process may be, having been breastfed on the poison of quote unquote individual experience. This actually in quotes. So I think that's either humor, hypocrisy, or a hustle. Um, especially when I think about the sort of isolated individual of so many of his poems, including the idea of uh, ancestry like that, is really rooted in individual experience of nothing else. So I think, yes, there's some charlatan in the statement, uh, but we could also call it adaptability. We could also call it influence, the way that, again, depending on his social circle, uh, he was going to say what he needed to say. Um, as with Brooks, there's little evidence of a kind of like set stagnant belief in his, in his poems. Instead, it's all fluid, it's all liquid. The things that he believes, the things that he sort of chooses to, to go to. So when he writes in the idea of ancestry, I have been at one time or another in love, he reveals first and foremost his relentless romanticism, his desire to be influenced, which is sort of what we, you might think about love. And this is sort of Plato too, right? In the symposium, the idea that friendships, platonic love and erotic love it's all about influence. It's all about absorbing uh, the, the influence of your partner. So in that regard, he certainly was a, a classic romantic. Um, so then I have a bunch of stuff here about all these different kinds of workshops around the group. So he was often in love. He was married five times through a combination of law and common law arrangements, never for more than five or six years. And a lot of the poems sort of underscore that Upon Your Leaving is dedicated to Sonia Sanchez. Feeling Fucked Up is also a great poem, but also very much about her. And then you can hear in the names of the poems, a poem for a certain lady on her 33rd birthday, a poem for Mary McAnally, uh, a wife, a poem for a Brookline lady I love. This is her apartment. All these poems are to women who are both poets and lovers. And shortly after, after divorce to Sonia Sanchez, he married Mary McAnally, mentioned 
at the end of this poem, let's see if this comes next, next with uh, a poem in Galway Canal. So right around the time he divorces Sonia Sanchez, we have the first sort of indication of him moving into a, another network. And it's with Mary McAnally. Inevitably, it's in Minnesota, but it's the deep image poets. It's Robert Bly, Galway Canal, James Wright. You know, he, they, they shared work. They sent each other work. They wrote poems back and forth. So you can look at this poem very quickly. And again, it's like, I know their styles. That mantra comes through. As you see, it's not quite the idea of ancestry poem, but it's also certainly not like a black artist aesthetic poem. Um, and so it's very personal, epistolary. I mean, it also has a lot of landscape, some of the things that we might think of him having absorbed from the, the deep image poets. And some of the things that I've highlighted in Circle go to the way that the poem has a different kind of interest in, or is a kind of adapting Bly's notion of the deep image poet. So uh, let me see, where am I here? This other poem, this is a poem from his first book for Langston Hughes from Poems from Prison. So Knight's poem to Langston Hughes depicts a not revolutionary, a political violence associated with black arts. Again, if you think about Baraka's poem, uh, we want poems that are guns, but violence associated with grief. I shared this poem in the Black Poets Speak Out recently precisely because it suggests anger and outrage often cover deeper emotions. Anger often covers heartbreak. As Knight devotes such a poem to Hughes, he asked me to reconsider the influence of Hughes. The same is happening for Knight as many young poets contemplate and expand his influence. We change our influences just as much as they change us. So I'm really echoing back this idea of backs and dolls about rewriting history, rewriting what your influences are, even though it seems stagnant. And so with that, I'll, I'll show you just a couple of slides here of his influences. And I think this is right around the time of his, uh, he gave himself awake, he threw himself awake when he found out he was about to die in the early 90s. So there's a young Yusuf Komenyaka at his wake. Uh, and then here, a few years ago, a band of poets, uh, mostly Kavi Kanan poets, were sort of touring, giving readings that were sort of inspired by some of Etheridge Knight's themes. So there, you know, I see Randall and uh, Marcus Jackson are sort of on both posters, but it sort of shifted depending on who was where. There's Dwayne Betts, a uh, local poet. You might, well, he's not local, but he's a local uh, celebrity in DC. People in DC know who Dwayne is, let's say that. So, but he's got a much larger reputation. So again, I'm suggesting here, and what I'm skipping over is just this idea of the extended influence in the way that younger poets are still trying to think about night and extending this idea of liquidity, I think. Um, so I'm gonna go here really quickly through this little reading list. They're, you know, the books I left off were like uh, Anxiety of Influence, which y'all know. But this is the Beautiful Enemies uh, book. This is Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist, which you can actually, as I said, get online. This one, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry, is also a good book. I think people don't like it anymore because he was Catholic or something. He was like a Catholic philosopher, which seems paradoxical maybe, but it's interesting. He's interesting. There's Liquid Modernity, uh, Zygmunt Bowman. It's just that first name that I love. Uh, Patterns of Intention. And then this is a really important book uh, in terms of Etheridge Knight. It's part biography and part critical study by uh, Michael Collins, uh, Understanding Etheridge Knight. I think that came out in 2012. But we're not quite done yet. I do want to talk about this because we want to get back to this idea of exaptation. So the liquid network, the adjacent possible, the hunch, I think all those things are clear. 
but to spend an extra moment on like how the sphere of uh, influence really impacts us means I got to bring up one more philosopher, and that's uh, Gian Battista Vico from 1668 to 1744. So Gian uh, Vico, I'll just call him Vico, was an Italian political philosopher and rhetorician whose virum factum principle stated that truth is verified through creation and not, as Descartes would say, through observation. So this is how I summed it up. And I really could just stop here. I don't need to say much else about him. So if Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, Vico would say, I make, therefore I grasp. So he believes that the truth is verified through, through what you make, how you move through the world. And so I think that's certainly true. Um, what else would I say about him? The idea that we can know ourselves, one of his ideas is that we can't really know ourselves because we have not created ourselves. But we can know computers, we can know cars, anything that we uh, made, we can understand. So the best way to understand poetry, which is made by men, is to imitate it. And that, again, goes back to this principle I said earlier in terms of making work, making work as a kind of doorway into new work, imitating work as a doorway into new work, as opposed to uh, making work as a kind of imitation, essentially, as a mirror of the old work. What else? That's, that's what I want to say there about him. Uh, the end of looking and reading is doing. This is also true of politics, by the way. The end of saying is doing. Extaptation suggests we cannot always know uh, what, what will result of that doing. We can't know our plans to build a wine press will result in a printing press. And this, according to Stephen Johnson, and I think to me, is really the key to innovation, which is surprise. And that's what we hope comes out of uh, influence, the idea that influence always leads you to a place you might not have always, you might not have always been. So I'm going to do this circle. Now, you know I had one more slide with a poem. And I think I could, I could end there with that poem, and then we could talk a little bit if there's still, there's still time. So this is just a summary of how I understand these things to be working. And I want to emphasize again that the closest to the center circle is the most important thing. So liquid network, poetic network, black arts movement, AWP movement, the platform as workshop, uh, that space where you don't live with these people, but you, you know them. Maybe they live in your city. Maybe they've traveled somewhere to meet you. Exaptation as revolutionary reading and writing, the adjacent possible partnerships, collaborations, and then you and your hunches is sort of one way to think about the organization of these moments. And then I'll just go through. What I'll say about these poems without reading them is that he just sort of happens to show up in every other book at Thrift Night. So in my very first book, I have a poem that's dealing with the poem he wrote called uh, as you leave me, and then I, wrote, I said, okay, no more at night poems. I published the book, and then in uh, Wind in the Box, I have a series of blue poems, and this is a poem sort of in the voice of Ethridge Knight, Dear Parole Board, or the perennial now. So I left them alone in Lighthead, and then in a more recent book, this poem, Portrait of Ethridge Knight in the style of a criminal report, a crime report is sort of playing around with some of the mythology around him, and also playing around with like how he went to jail. You know, the reason he went to jail, people have different stories about that. Uh, and we could talk about that too. I won't go into the truth of that story. But this poem in three parts is, uh, again, another example of me trying to engage Etheridge Knight as a way of doing, as a way of making, as opposed to as a way of just observing, if you hear where, where that comes from, why this emerges at the end of the talk. I'm still trying to play out Vico's theory. 
Actually, I, I heard, the way I heard about Vico was I was just at a party talking about, yeah, I like for my kids to imitate. I think that's the best way for them to understand everything. And then the guy I was saying this to said, oh, you're a vegan. And then I said, you know, I like meat, you know. And, then, and I went home and I looked it up and was like, oh, yeah, Vico, that is. That is what I am. So, and again, you can see what these things mean, uh, the dialectic, your ideas, uh, other ideas, and then the new ideas, again, just a, sort of a few. And then like, why all this matters at the end is this uh, John Baldessari painting, I Will Not Make Any More Boring Art. <laughs> that was Terence Hayes giving his lecture, Ideas of Influence. Hayes's book, based on his Bagley Wright lectures, to float in the space between a life and work in conversation with the life and work of Etheridge Knight, was published by Wave Books in 2018 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarnot, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to the Library of Congress for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.